Thank you, Grady. I have a bit of an article to open with. It's written by Drew Dyke. He's an associate editor of Christianity Today. And he wrote an article entitled, Confessing Other People's Sins. My friend Dan Darling recently commented that social media is like a reverse confessional. We go there to confess other people's sins. He's right, of course. There's something about social media that seems to reward calling out the failings of others while minimizing or denying our own shortcomings. But this tendency has been around for a long time. I remember when I was a kid and my dad, a pastor, received a late night phone call from a man in our church. Pastor, you'll never guess who's down at the strip club right now. The informant on the line had gotten so excited about catching another church member frequenting a house of ill repute that he'd forgotten one crucial fact. I'm sorry to hear that, my dad said, but let me ask you, how did you know he was there? Busted. I understand the impulse to point out the sin of others. It's much more comfortable than examining your own heart and actions. Speaking of which, I have to go. I just thought of some terrible things other people have done, and I should hop online and confess them right now. I shared with you last week, there probably is no more beautiful place to spend some time than John chapter 3 especially since it contains verse 16. But I told you, I shared with you that verse 17 to me is as beloved as 16. Indeed, he said, that God sent the Son into the world not to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be what? Might be saved through him. See, and the reason being is because of who we are before and after we come to believe that God loved us and gave us his only son. See, because when we come to believe that, it doesn't change one particular thing about us. See, after I came to believe that, I was convicted to become baptized and to join the body. One thing, though, I was waiting, and almost 40 years later, I'm still waiting for the moment that I quit sinning. Because, you know, we should, right? Quit. Well, there will be a day. There is coming a day when this fallen nature will be completely replaced. But for now, we live in the world where the fallen nature and the unfallen nature of Christ mixes. That we have come to faith, we come to believe that although we have this nature and occasionally we will fail, that, we, that when we do, we don't find one thing. What I used to find before I came to Christ. And that is what? Condemnation. See, for now, we're, we are told just what, just what Grady uh, just shared with us. If we say that we have no sin, we what? We deceive ourselves. And the truth is not what? The truth is not in us. So if you have people walking around saying, there's no more sin in me, then John's saying, mm, I, got something, I got something for you. So when we do fail, we do sin, what we don't find is what we used to find before we met Christ, before we came to believe John 3.16, and that is we do not find condemnation. 
See, because we are condemned by our sin if we choose to be. It's always been so. On the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So condemnation has been with sin ever since sin was sin. But Jesus, though, didn't come to condemn. He came to what? He came to save. So faith in that, faith in him, means that we don't find the condemnation that we used to find before we came to this son who was given because God so loved the world. Verse 18, moving on in the rest of chapter three, at least, tells us this. Those who believe in him are not what? are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already because they've not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Before Jesus came to me, before he pursued me and and, and tracked me down, okay, I had, I'd already been condemned. How did I, how, how do we get condemned? How did we get condemned from our sin? What did we manage to do? To get born, Right? That's all we had to do was to get born. We were reading from Psalm 139 today. That's what, that's what uh, David says. David says, you know, I, I've been a sinner in the womb. That's all we had to do. But when we believe, we do not have condemnation anymore. We have eternal life, according to that scripture right there. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already because they don't believe. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light so that their deeds may not be exposed. See, the church thinks they know the answer to this. What I'm saying is, what am I supposed to believe about my sin then? Because that's the question that has continued to come up from the second I stepped out of the baptistry. How long was it before you sinned after you were baptized? I used to say, and you'll have to imagine it and you have to take my word for it, or ask Nellie, I don't think my hair had dried yet. I had hair then. And I got it wet as I was supposed to do in the baptistry. <laughs> but before my hair dried, I'd already... I know that I did. I may not have done it with my hands because I was still in church, but I know I did it here. I know I did it here. So what about our sin? See, and the church thinks that they know the answer because Jesus follows with these scriptures right here. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world. See, the church taught me that if I'm struggling with sin, it's because I want to keep it hidden. I want to keep it in the dark so I can keep doing it. See, if I keep it in the dark, then I can keep doing it. The church thinks that every sinner has this plan. Every sinner wants to continue. We don't want to come to the light. Why? Because we want to keep on sinning. Now, on one level, that might be true. On one level, if I give myself completely over to my nature, that is absolutely true. That's all my nature wants to do. That's all I want to do, is to continue to live the self-centered life that I was living before Jesus found me. On one level, it's true. But I want you to look a little closer to these verses. I want you to think a little bit about them. 
And maybe the rest of this discourse in John chapter three can help us. So let me ask you this. Is it true that sinners love darkness rather than light? Grady says yes. How about you guys out there? Is it true that sinners love darkness better than light? Wasn't true with me. No. Do sinners care whether you not they know you're a sinner or not? I didn't. All my sins were out there. I was living the life I wanted to live and I didn't care who knew it. I wasn't hiding it. Is it true that sinners hide their sin so that it may not be exposed? No, sinners don't do that. I sinned in the open. My habits, my hurts, my hang-ups, my addiction was all in the open. My habits and hurts and hang-ups were done not in the dark. They were done in the light because I didn't care what you thought. We don't care what people think when we're sinners. Why? Because it's all about who? It's all about me. Now, are they easier to indulge in the dark? Sure. But it wouldn't have mattered to me who knew who I was. See, and we have to remember what he's already taught us about the light. In chapter one, he taught, us, he, he taught us about the light, right? The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, so who is this light? Jesus is the light. It's not some light that exposes sin. It's not like the sun hitting a dark room. It isn't as random as that. It isn't as impersonal as that. The light, according to John, is a person. The light is Jesus himself. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. But then he says, he came into what was his own, and his own people did not what? Did not accept him. See, the world doesn't accept him because they don't what? Because they don't know him. They do not know him. But the church doesn't accept him because he is what? He is light. So you have to think those, those questions back before. That, that sinners uh, love the darkness rather than the light. You have to remember who he's talking to. Is he talking to the sinner? Is he talking to the world? No. Because it's his own people who, came, who he came to, and they did not accept him. See, the world just doesn't know him. Religious people, though, know him, and they don't accept him. Why? Because it's religious people who like to live in the dark. When I began to learn to try and hide my sin is after I became a Christian. Because I knew it would not be acceptable in this church anymore. So then I tried to hide it. It's believers who love the darkness, not non-believers. See, in Jesus' day, his own religion taught them to hide their sin. The law condemns it. God has condemned it. So I got to hide it. See, if they walked around claiming to have no sin, they were what? They were liars. And they knew that they were, so they had two choices. One is, they either bring their sin into the open, let God uh, uh, expose it, if you will, expose it before God, and then do what? 
There, were, there, were, there was a way, okay? There was a way that you could be forgiven for your sin back then, but you had to do what with it? You had to bring it out. You had to confess. Even if it was to confess it over that, that offering, that sin offering that the priest then would offer on the altar for you. But what did you have to do in order for that offering to be done? You had to confess it. You had to bring it out. By Jesus' day, they're not confessing anymore. In fact, they would rather hide it. They'd rather look good. In Jesus' day, their own religion taught that if you're a sinner, you, gotta be, you, you will be condemned. But the condemnation is not by Jesus. It's not by the light. It's by who? It's by the church. Because one of the ways that I can keep my sin hidden, unfortunately, probably the best way that I can keep my sin hidden is to point out yours. Come up with a standard that you don't meet, that I know that I do, or at least I appear to. And that's just it, is that I appear to do it. And if I'm appearing to do it, am, am I truly in the light? No, that's when I'm walking in the darkness. I'm deceiving people with darkness. I'm deceiving people because I'm holding up a particular standard. Remember how Jesus referred to the church of the day. Beware, he said, don't practice your piety before others. Gnats, uh, straining out gnats, but swallowing camels. Prayers, tithes, Sabbath rules. Religious people don't sin in literal closets of darkness. They hide in their practices. They cover it up with piety. That's why I concentrate on the things that I know that I can do because it allows me to keep it hidden. It gives me permission to commit the greater sins. Selfishness, greed, anger, jealousy. Name them. Factions. It gives me permission to do that. Why? Why am I allowed to do that? Because I'm such a good Sabbath keeper. Why am I allowed to do that? Because I'm a vegan. Why am I allowed to do that? Because I pay my tithes and my offerings. I have present truth, and I can be as mean as I want to be. But if I do, I'm no longer living in the light. Where am I living? I'm living in the darkness. And I think the things that I've covered myself in are light, but they're not. God made his covenant with people that had appropriate, even noble names. Back, back when God made his covenant, the, the name of somebody, the name of, of, of who we are was actually who you were. It, it, it reflected who you were. So when he made his covenant, who was the first person that he made his covenant with? He made it with a man named Abraham, which literally means father of a nation. Abraham was a father of a nation. He was married to Sarah. Her name means noble lady or princess of nobility. Their son, the next one who gets the, the, uh, the covenant, they nicknamed him or they named him Laughter, Itzthak, because it reminded them of the joy that God brought to them, the promise that he promised a 100-year-old lady, a 90-year-old lady, that she could have the promise to the covenant. 
The covenant now is passed on to a grandson, to Abraham's grandson. And what I want to get at is what his name was. See, because it passes on to Isaac's son. And, and, and yes, he, he's shown early on that he gets, that he gets the covenant. He, he dreamed there was a ladder set up on earth and, and angels were sending up and down on it. And he heard the voice of God, said, I'm the, I'm the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the noble names, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth. You'll spread about the west and the east. I will not leave you. And who is it that's holding this covenant now? What's his name? What grand noble name of the covenant giver, keeper is, is now given? His name is Jacob. See, in the word, the name Jacob literally means heel or heel grabber, if you will. Because remember, Jacob was part of a, a twin birth and he comes out holding on to the heel of his older brother. That should have told Esau what he was in for. So they named him Jacob, somebody who, who the word literally means to assail insidiously or to circumvent an overreacher, one who will take an insidious advantage. That's what the word Jacob means. There's a prophecy talking about how Israel, uh, you'll come across, there'll come a, a time where you'll be betrayed by everybody. You won't have brothers or sisters. And it says, beware every man of his friend Trust not even a brother. Every brother takes advantage. Every brother takes an insidious advantage. Every friend is base in his dealings. That verb, takes advantage, is the word Jacob. Every brother, Jacob's. That's his name. And we know, we know that before God gives him the covenant, he went on to earn that name, didn't he? He steals that older brother's birthright. He takes advantage of Esau's hunger. Esau is hungry and Jacob knows it. He takes advantage of it and steals his birthright from, from uh, somebody who's, who claims that he's starving. We all know what we're willing to do when we're hungry. What would you do for a Klondike bar? or a bowl of lentil stew. With mom's help, he then steals Esau's blessing. Steals his blessing, steals his birthright. He flees for his life. But while he's out there, God comes to him and tells him that he's made his covenant with him. He's made it with Abraham. He's made it with his father, Yitzhak. And now he's made it with you, Yaakov. He runs to his relatives. He falls in love with this woman named Rachel. And then finally he meets somebody who at least is as deceitful as he is, his uncle Laban. Laban takes advantage of Jacob's love the same way that Jacob took advantage of Esau's hunger and of Isaac's blindness. He gets a taste of his own medicine. Seven years he worked. Did he get his, his wife? No. He got her sister so that Laban could get what out of him? Seven more years. He takes advantage of him. Now, the deceiver, the conner, is able to con the con. 
because he comes exceedingly rich. Genesis 30 says, the man grew exceedingly rich and had large flocks and male and female slaves and camels and donkeys. And how did he get that? Because he took advantage of his uncle. And that's how he got here. That's all he knows how to do. He deceives, he lies, he manipulates, he handles his habits and his hurts and his hang-ups and his sins and his addictions his way. And he blames everybody. He blames his dad. He blames his mom. He blames his father-in-law. He blames his wives. He's going to come to blame his children. So he sounds like who? I don't know about you, but he sounds like me. It's everyone else's fault of why I am the way I am. God says, okay, go. I'll be with you. Again, points it out, I'll be with you. But imagine the baggage that Jacob is carrying right now. The baggage of the lives that he's ruined. And the one that he's thinking about right now because God told him to return to his homeland. So the one life that he ruined that he's thinking about right now is, is whose? His brother Esau's. He's carrying that. He's carrying that baggage. Do you know what it's like to carry a sin like that? We all do to a particular degree. It's his name, and he has lived up to it. And he's just beginning to realize it. He's just beginning to understand what he's done. The deceiver, the supplanter, the betrayer. And the only reason that he's beginning to understand it, and the only reason that he's beginning to think about, maybe even think about changing his ways, is because God is with him. See, God's decided that he's going to be with him, no matter who he is. I know what your name is. I know what your name is. God said, God, in a way, they, they look at it that it was God that gave him the name Jacob. Because Isaac, Isaac and Rebekah were the ones that, that named him, and Isaac and Rebekah were the ones that were carrying the covenant at the time. It was God that gave Jacob this name. I know who you are. And he says, I'll be with you. It's the only reason he's beginning to feel the weight of this sin, to feel the weight of his name. So he moves on. He's still carrying this baggage, and it's getting pretty dark. But God is keeping his promise. Because even as he's moving on in this, he looks and he sees angels. He actually looks up and he sees angels of God that coming towards him. And he says, when he sees him, he says, this is God's camp. So he called the place Mahanaim. He knows God is with him. But what is he afraid of? What is he carrying? Again, he's headed for the land of his relatives. And what's he afraid is going to happen? Is that he's going to have to live the condemnation of his sin. Because Esau knows how to carry that condemnation out, doesn't he? And he promised, he promised that as soon as Isaac died, Jacob would not take another breath. Esau was not thrilled with this lying mama's boy of a little brother. In a way, Esau's life was ruined. So when Jacob sees the angels, he names the camp after them. Shouldn't he just relax, though? No, he can't relax because he's still carrying that. He's carrying all the baggage of his name. 
So he puts a plan into motion. He sends messengers first. He, he's going to try and feel Esau out just a little bit. And, and, and he says, say to them, your servant Jacob, I've lived with Laban as an alien and stayed until now. I've got oxen. I've got donkeys. I've got flocks and male, flocks and male and female slaves. I've got all those things. Tell me, Lord, in order that I may find favor in your sight. What is he trying to do? He's back to his old ways. He's going to manipulate into Esau. He's going to manipulate Esau into not condemning him for his sin. He's going to buy his way out. He's still manipulating the situation. Bribery. What's one thing that he's lacking? The angels are there, which means who's with him? What's the one thing he's not doing? He's not calling on God. The covenant is, cursed be everyone who curses you, blessed be everyone who blesses you. If he believes that, shouldn't he be asking God to do something about Esau wanting to kill him, about Esau carrying this condemnation for Jacob's earlier sin? The messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother and he's coming to meet you and 400 men are with him. So now on the surface, when the darkness and the burden and the condemnation that he's carrying, that causes him, as soon as he hears that, he hits the panic button and he puts this plan into motion. He divides all he has into two companies because he knows Esau's going to kill him and who is ever with him. So maybe if he can save half of them, that they'll survive. That's not a bad plan, except think about it. He may lose half his family in this plan. He may lose his wives in this plan. He may lose half of everything he knows in this plan. And he's beginning to realize that it isn't because Esau's going to kill him. It's because it's his fault. He's beginning to live the consequences of this. He's beginning to live the condemnation of it. And that's the best that the world has to offer. Hold on a second, though. All the servants said was that Esau was coming to meet him, right? Well, he knew that. And 400 men are with him. He didn't say anything about what might happen afterwards. What's going on? Remember, Esau has his own kingdom now, right? He's in charge of his own country, his, his own place. It was promised to him. He has his own nation, the nation of Edom. 400 men is just the way he rolls. He has to. But why does Jacob assume the worst? It's because of the darkness that he's carrying. It's because he's living in the dark. He thinks that no, if no one else knows what I did to my brother, and I can buy my way out of this, then everything is going to be okay. And by the way, that's the hope of every sinner. If I could just hide my sin long enough, I'll be able to buy my way out of this. I'll just become good, and I'll be better than, than I was bad. And then everybody will still think that I'm good, and I'll have bought my way out of this. That's a dark place to live. That's a dark place to live. The other thing to note is that Jacob is finally what? He's alone. Worst place for us to be as sinners is alone. Because we can talk ourselves into anything. Look what he's talked himself into. Look what he's talked himself into thinking a great plan will be. Then he finally prays. 
But even his prayer is manipulative. It starts by saying, deliver me please from the hand of my brother, the hand of Esau. And he spends the, he spends the night there. But even, even his prayer is manipulative. He says, he says, oh Lord, who said to me, return to your country and your kindred and I will do you good. You, you're the one that told me to do this. And he says, deliver me please from the hand of Esau for I'm afraid of him. He may come and kill us and the mothers with his children, yet you've said, I'll do you good. He's reminding God. He's trying to manipulate God into giving him his blessing. You promised me this. His last resort. So he tries to manipulate Esau. He tries to manipulate everybody around him. And he finally tries to manipulate God. And now he's completely alone in the wilderness and he thinks that he's going to be okay. Imagine trying to sleep after that. The guilt of his sins against Esau, against his father. But God's been in the camp and he's been revealing this to him. So I don't think he slept at all. He's out there in the darkness. He's out there in the wilderness fearing for his life. The bitterest, the bitterest thing he must be thinking is, is that his own sin has at least endangered his wives and his children and his servants and everybody with him at least. But he also may have signed their death warrant. They may all die tomorrow. They may all be butchered tomorrow or taken slaves by my brother. And he's wearing this and this is wearing on him and he's completely alone or at least he thought he was. And then he feels a hand on his shoulder. Jacob was left alone, it says. And a man then wrestled with him until daybreak. If it were you, who would you think that hand was on your shoulder in the darkness? He thought it was Esau. So Jacob turns and what? He turns and fights. It's all he got left, right? He's completely by himself. So he turns and fights. Uh, uh, Moses calls it a wrestling match, but literally he turns around and he begins to fight. But we know better. Who is it? See, God has shown up. It's not, it's not just angels in, in a distant camp now. Now it's him. God has shown up. He's standing right beside him. He's wrestling with him. Jacob thinks he's an enemy, but God just continues to wrestle. And I don't know how long this went on, but I do know that it at least goes until daybreak, and I don't know how long that was, right? He fights for all he's worth, but soon he realizes something. He's getting whipped. <laughs> I may be a mama's boy, but I'm no wimp. What's going on here? And then finally God speaks and says, when, and, and, and Moses says when he saw that he couldn't prevail against Jacob, that's how hard Jacob's fighting. He's fighting and fighting and fighting and, and God can't get him what he needs to do. I'm not saying that God is manipulating him, but God is bringing him to a point that he needs to do something now. He needs to do something he's never ever dreamed of, never ever thought of before because of the condemnation that he has been living so he reaches down in the middle of the wrestling match and he touches Jacob's hip and it what? It dislocates. 18 years of radiology, I took care of four people who had dislocated their hips. 
You have to remember the strongest muscles in your body are, are, are your, your quadriceps. The muscles that are, that are in the ligaments that are holding in your hip are the strongest in all your body. You knock that out of socket, you should have seen what it takes to get it back in. Now his hip is dislocated. So surely now he's going to what? He's going to lose this match. So he's desperate. And he sees his chances are slipping completely away. So he hangs on for just a minute and he digs in. He goes up to the edge of where God is bringing him. He literally says, let me go for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you what? Unless you bless me. He's holding on to his lapels. He's got nothing left. He's got absolutely nothing left. So in that desperation, he does the one thing that he didn't believe he could do up until this moment, and that is to ask God what? To bless him. Let me ask you this. Does he deserve it? No. Is he condemned or is he saved? He's condemned and he knows it, doesn't he? He's coming out of the darkness and he's walking into what? He's walking into the light. I will not let you go unless you bless me. There's no arrogance or boasting about that. Patriarchs and Prophets says, but this was the assurance of one who confesses his own unworthiness, yet trusts the faithfulness of a covenant-keeping God. It isn't until this moment that he asks him, because maybe, just maybe, God wasn't kidding about keeping the covenant with me. All my plans have failed. My sin, I can do nothing about. I've been carrying it all my life. I've got no one else to blame. Please, please, bless me. And you'd think that he's there, but he isn't quite yet. One other thing has to happen. God asks what? What's your name? I got to think that he almost let go then. Ah, oh, you're going to bring that up? You're going to bring that up? You're going to throw that in my face right now? It's my name. It's not my mother's. It's not my father's. It's not my wife's. It's not my kids, my coworker, my friend who betrayed me. It's not the people that have been mean to me. It's not my pastor who ignored me. It's not my church who's neglected me. It's not my husband who won't cherish me. It's not my wife who hates me. It's not them. It's me. My name is Jacob. By saying his name, he's finally done the one thing that will allow him to walk into the light. He brings it all into the light when he says his name out loud. He comes clean. See, walking into the light isn't a duty. It's an experience. It's an authentic experience. Isaiah put it this way, come let us argue this out. See, the belief that you and I have that we don't find any condemnation in Jesus has to be argued out. It has to be, uh, because he says, your sins are like scarlet, they'll be like snow. Though they are like crimson, they will be like wool. 
sorry. I know you don't believe that, he says. Let's argue it out. Number one, you don't believe it because you don't think you need it. You don't think you have sin enough that needs to be, that needs to be cleansed like, uh, uh, like scarlet into snow or like crimson into wool. You don't, one, you don't believe it. You keep coming to me every day uh, uh, surrounded in your self-righteousness and trying to offer it to me. You won't come into the light. You won't bring it. But that experience says it won't happen until we do. You shared with us, if we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If I'm doing nothing but covering my sins up with my self-righteousness, with my piety, which by the way, what is self-righteousness? Is it righteousness? No, it is not. If I keep covering it up, I'm not bringing it to him. I am not bringing it into the light. And this relationship of doing this with God, of bringing it in, it's not done in the dark. I'm moving from the dark to the light. That's how he finishes this discourse in, 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 in 321. But those who do what is true come to where? They come to the light so that they may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. It is done in the light. See, I used to think that bringing sins into the light was just for exposure. It's just, to, it's just to shame me. It's just to, to, to uh, you know, remind me that I, don't, that, I, that, I, that I don't amount to anything. But we forget, who is this light? He is. He's not some harsh sunlight who just exposes you. By the way, the harsh sunlight that just exposes what your sin is and can't do anything about it after that is the very definition of the law. All the law does is tell me that I've what? That I've broken it. Does it have a solution? No. The light does. Because when I come to the light, it's not just some harsh, indifferent uh, source of light that's exposing all the darkness in me and then just leaving me there. It's not just being exposed. It's being able to come into him and then he takes care of that. He takes care of all of it. He forgives and then he even, according to our scripture reading, Grady, he cleanses from what? From all unrighteousness. After that experience, you, after coming into the light, after coming to him that way, you can truly walk away as if you had never, ever sinned. He'll tell us in chapter five, very truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, does not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. See, when it's all brought into light, something amazing happens with the covenant and is the only way that it can happen. Because after Jacob puts it out there, after he truly confesses who he really is, Hi, I'm Jacob, I'm a deceiver. Hi, I'm Greg, I'm an alcoholic. Hi, I'm Greg, I'm a sinner. When he truly puts it out there, God looks him right in the eye and says, no longer shall you be called Jacob, you shall be called Israel. For you've striven with God and with humans and you have prevailed, you've wrestled with God and you prevailed, you have the victory. And, and Jacob's gotta be thinking, what? I'm sitting here with a broken hip or a 
dislocated hip. I can't even stand up. And you're telling me that I have the victory? And God said, yes. Because you confessed. You brought it into the light. I've been waiting. God has told me for years. I've been waiting for you to come to me. I've been waiting to, to hand you not condemnation, but forgiveness and righteousness and cleansing. Yitzrael, two words from the word Sarah and the word El. It means wrestling with God and prevailing. From now on, the covenant is even named after this experience of coming to him, of coming into the light. Not, not bringing uh, a false piety, not, not bringing my, my record, if you will, not my, my record of self-righteousness, but bringing my record, my real record, now that has a name. It's called wrestling with God. And the covenant with Israel is perpetual because of Jesus. See, because the next day, a great parade, two brothers meet on a plane in the desert. One, a big red-headed guy who's walking a bit bent over because he's carried a grudge for far too long. And the other one's limping limping real bad and moving slow. But he's got a glow in his face, a glow that comes from truly unburdening himself to the Father of the covenant and seeing him face to face. Jesus said, if we've seen him, we've seen the Father. So I didn't find these lessons anywhere else but in recovery, to tell you the truth. Philip Yancey tells us that the story of, of AA comes because uh, Bill W., the founder, who was an alcoholic, was sitting, had, had, had quit drinking for a while, for a little while, and he was sitting in a hotel room, and he was a salesman, and the, sales, the sale had fallen through, and he was depressed, and he was down, and he was in a dark place. And instead of going up to his room after it happened, he headed straight for the bar. And he's sitting at the bar and he ordered a drink. And before the drink came, a thought came to him and he said, you know what? I don't need another drink. I need another alcoholic. And instead of drinking the drink, he got, he got up and he went over and he called a friend of his who he knew was an alcoholic. And that's how AA was born. He didn't pretend to his friend that he wasn't an alcoholic. He didn't pretend to his friend that he was this close, this close to giving in to that nature. He didn't have to. And he knew he was not going to find anything but no condemnation from this friend. Why? Because the friend's one too. See, we need to quit teaching that righteousness is a destination to be reached. That someday, sometime, if we work real hard and do good things and nothing but good things, we will get it perfect. When nothing could be further from the truth, we wrestle with our limp. We walk with our limp. We need to concentrate on progress, not perfection. Because the idea that perfection comes when we get to be our age and we have fought that fight for so long and pretty soon we get to an age to where we can't fight at all anymore. Then what happens to us? We'll begin to listen to those voices, won't we? 
I had a member in a church once who had served the church all his life. He was a third generation Adventist. He put in 50 years working for, for a university. He was skilled. He built cabinets. He was a woodworker. But when he got to the age, he couldn't, uh, got to a particular age, he couldn't do it anymore. And at his 80 years old, he was beginning to wonder what good to God he was. And the one thing that he knew above all others was that he knew that he wasn't perfect yet. See, and for 50 years, he was able to, to cover up that imperfection by serving the Lord. And now that service was taken away from him. And now every night, he, he, he can't sleep because he's afraid that if he dies now, he'll be what? He'll be condemned because I know, he says, I know I'm not perfect. Twice he came to the pastor before me and asked him to be rebaptized. But when the pastor found out why he wanted to be rebaptized, he couldn't do it. And then he comes to me. Same thing. He needs to be rebaptized because it will make him perfect. At least, at least maybe I got a shot. If you rebaptize me, then I have a shot. I can, I can not be condemned anymore because there's nothing I can do for him. That was my first encounter. My first encounter of an Adventist who couldn't even pretend anymore that he wasn't depressed. We couldn't convince him of it. See, but if I had rebaptized him, what would I have been telling him? And what would have happened to him the second that he comes out of the water? He didn't believe he can come to Jesus anymore because he wasn't perfect. And now he was getting ready to die. We concentrate on progress. We concentrate not on perfection but we concentrate on the wrestling match. We wrestle with the limp. We come out of the light. And believe me, one day the church is going to have to begin to cooperate with this process. We're going to have to stop teaching people that they have to hide their sin from us. And we have to find ways, we have to find groups, we have to find safe places where people can, can walk with the limp and bring their sin into lightness and, and find forgiveness and find a forgiving community that will help them believe that forgiveness and live that forgiveness out, then we will have unburdened people and truly taught them that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This, this is the message that we heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we are walking in darkness, we lie and we do what is not true. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us all from sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we've not sinned, we make him a liar and the word isn't in us. 
My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is why we need each other. He said, I write this so that you may not sin, but I also write it so you don't carry the condemnation of your sin when you do. I'm happy again today to be reminded that that's who we're supposed to be. See to it that no one misses the grace of God today. Thank you, Grady. Ben, thank you for you. Those that are here, thank you for joining us online. I do miss you and love you and look for the time when we can all be back together again.